And my suspicion is that it's not, while they're not worded exactly the same, this is the same plague. It's just that it's more universal now. Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out on man in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And then there's this phrase, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And that hardening of the heart is an important part of this whole process. But we have the... I can't believe I just did that. (laughs) I just closed my Bible away from Exodus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because, guess what, we're going back there now for the blood. <laughs> but the painful boils, right? He says the, the, the first angel pours out his bowl, and it becomes painful sores. Poured out his bowl, and harmful and painful sores became upon all the people who bore the mark of the beast. And it, it's very similar. It's, it's, repeti- it's repetition. It's, it's uh, reminiscent, is the word I want, of what happened in, in Exodus chapter 9. We go back to Exodus chapter 7, and we have the water becoming blood. And listen to what happens. Exodus 7, 17 through 19. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, take with the staff... With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. Uh, And uh, we skip, I'll, I'll just keep reading, I guess. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt and over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Which, if so, we have have everything becomes blood. We have the in in Revelation we had the two, you know, we had the the second bowl is poured out on the sea and every living thing that dies in the sea the third bowl poured out on the bowl into the rivers and springs of water they become blood and he doesn't say the vessels but I have a hard time not thinking even the vessels meaning even the bottled water that you buy at Safeway you know even the bottled water that you have in your fridge uh, even you know I don't know what happens to coke (laughs) you know coke would kill the no I'm sorry uh (laughs) The biggest difference is that the plagues in Egypt were on a much, much smaller scale, limited to one country for a short amount of time. And and, and so these sores, it's a repetition of what we found in Egypt. And what we found in Egypt was not merely these plagues coming upon the land, but this hardening of the heart that, that Pharaoh, at least, refused to repent but hardened his heart instead of repenting and softening his heart. The same thing, I mean, the difference between hardening your heart and softening your heart is your response to the hardship you face. You face hardship, you can respond by softening your heart and opening yourself up, or you can respond by hardening your heart and closing yourself off. And when somebody goes through a tragedy, I often will tell them this. Be careful, because the temptation is to wrap yourself up and protect yourself from the hurt, because it hurts. 
and you don't want to be hurt again, so you wrap yourself up and protect yourself. It's the wrong response. You need to open yourself up to find grace and compassion and peace that God wants to give. Okay, These people are hardening their hearts. And, and then as we look at these plagues, there's a temptation we have. I don't know if maybe you have this temptation as much as I do, but I start to, in my mind, try to figure out how this naturally might happen, how God might be working through natural events and bringing things around. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, the sores. He says the sores come out on, on, on everybody who has the mark of the beast. And so I say, okay, it's something connected with the, you know, it's like you hear later, tattoo ink is dangerous. <laughs> oh, really? Shocker. You know, and people with more tattoo ink on their body have, are going to have more risk. It's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like, how long does it take for some of these things to come out? Sorry if I'm scaring some of you by that. <laughs> it's not, no, actually, it wasn't my intent. It's merely an illustration, but it's, it's one of those things that happen. And, and so it's like, maybe there's something in the process of implanting the mark of the beast. Maybe it's something in the process of whatever contains the mark of the beast. You know, and it could have this natural explanation. It could be. It could be the water. Maybe it's some sort of naturally caused catastrophe don't choke if I say related to global warming, because <laughs> I, I make fun of global warming. I don't believe, I believe in, I believe the climate changes, but, but uh, that's irrelevant. It's always done that, okay? Uh, but but the, the connection might be there. It might be something like that, uh, but, but I can't say it's not. It's not man-caused, a result of what man is doing at this time. Uh, but I think there's something else about it. I think we, we have to, I've, I've heard the plagues of Egypt tr explained in naturalistic events where they say the time, the, the miracle is not so much in the event itself, but in the timing of the miracle and how God brought these things to happen at the same time. There's all these natural, and it may be, but who is to say that the God who created everything out of nothing can't simply do it? He doesn't need natural explanations. And recognize what's happening here is this is the end of the world. God is bringing judgment on the world at this point. These are bulls of wrath. These are, these are not a, a part so that people will repent or a little bit so that people will repent. This is the bull of wrath. This is judgment coming on the earth. And God is not going to be subtle about this. He's not going to be, huh, I wonder if they can figure this one out. Right? That's not his goal. His purpose is to be plain and clear and no doubt about this whatsoever. This is God acting. So I don't think there are such things as natural explanations for what's happening here. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if it does happen in every pot and bowl and bottle of water. At this point, whatever is there will be turned into blood, which is, by the way, just, just on the side, why I think the bowls of wrath happen in very quick succession over a small amount of time because there are survivors of this. And how long are you going to survive something like this? I heard the three-minute rule, or the, the rule of threes. Three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. Well, how long do you survive this thing? You know, I, I don't know, I suppose maybe you could drink this stuff and not immediately die. Maybe it would prolong your life a little. It's hard to imagine people living on this stuff. Uh, I think these are completely supernatural, straight from the hand of God, because God is judging. But then we get to 5 through 7, right? Uh, Revelation 16, verses 5 through 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And look at this angel's perspective. He's an angel. He's not an actor. 
He's not an actee, he's a, an observer. I mean, he's an actor in the sense that he's the one in charge of the waters, but he watches what God does and he says, wow, that's fair. Right? That's what the angel is saying. He sees what God is doing and he says, that's fair. They shed the bloods of, blood of your saints and you make them drink blood. God, that's a fair judgment. The angel is impressed with the fairness and the rightness of what God is doing. And, and that's what we see. It looks very nice and poetic the way it's set aside. But he concludes with the statement, it is what they deserve. He says, this is right. Those people had this coming. And there's, there's no question about it. And then verse 7, the altar says it's just. You go, what is that with the altar? Well, let's go back. You may remember this in Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 of Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a, a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they will each be given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow saints and brothers. And when God finally does judge, the altar comes back and says, Yes, this is what we wanted. This is the justice we were looking for. True and right are your judgments, God. Those souls of the martyrs who have been waiting for justice, who have been saying, Come on, we died for you. We thought this meant something. And they're seeing now that yes, it does. And so we see with these first three bowls of wrath, we see that what God is doing is just and fair and right. It is right for God to do what he does. It is just. His judgment is fair. That's, a good import That's an important thing, first of all. It is important to recognize God is not out of control here. He is not acting uh, irrationally. He is acting in justice. But, but we see in verses 8 through 11, mankind's response to this and to the further things he's doing. And what we find is this refusal to repent. Verses 8 and 9, we have the sun becoming scorching. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with the fire. With, with fire, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So the, the, this one does not, by the way, replicate one of the plagues of Egypt. It is kind of interesting that it doesn't. This one stand alone. But people are scorched with fierce heat from the sun. Figure, picture massive, dry sunburns, scorching heat, uh, just miserable. There's no place you can hide, no place you can get away from this. And, and, it's, and it's miserable. And, and this is one we really want to blame on man's actions, right? Because you want to say, it's global warming. We did it. We destroyed the ozone. That's what's going on. No, it's not. See, it, it could be something you could explain and say that's a naturally caused thing. We're reaping what we've sown. Well, we're, we are reaping what we've sown, but it's not environmentally. It's morally, okay, uh, that we are reaping what we sow. We see the people in this passage, though. Well, who are they blaming for this heat? They're not blaming man. They're not saying, they're not saying it doesn't say they, they did not repent and blame man or be sorry for their, their mechanized society. They blame God directly. They know this is from God. 
They're not blaming man and his foolishness, man and his wastefulness, man and his, his, his lack of wisdom. They're blaming God directly. They have no doubt they understand where this is coming from. And I want to tell you something. You can't curse God if you don't think God is real. You can't do it. They believe God is real. They're not swearing by using the name of God, which is so prevalent in our world and our society today. They are swearing by attacking God by name. Right? They are swearing at God, not using God's name, but they're swearing at God. They're directing, they're cursing at him. I came across an interesting word this week. I, I'm sure I've stumbled across this word before. After all, this is what I do for a living, but I didn't remember this word. It's called theodicy. Theodicy. And what it means is the defense of God or the defense of God's justice, as if we have to defend God's justice. And it works like this. People often, you've, you've, you've encountered it, maybe you've done it. Why, God? Why are you doing this? It's not fair. If there really was a God, why does he allow this suffering to happen? Why does he allow those people to get away with those things that they're doing? If God was real, if God was fair, he wouldn't allow that to happen. And so theodicy is coming back and defending God and saying, why does God do this? And there's a lot of answers. But my favorite, I think, chops it off at the knees, which says, man is not the basis of judgment. When we start saying, God, if God was real, life would be better because we're suffering, we're saying, our not suffering is God's chief end. And our, God's job is to protect me from suffering, as if that was God's job. And we are wrong there. I mean, I don't care what you think God should be doing. You are not the basis of judgment of right and wrong. God is. And so you want to defend his justice. Our judgments about morality are man-centered, and, and something more, more than man is required to judge these things. We are not it. The bottom line is that these people are, admit, are acknowledging there is a God, but they're not sub submitting to him. They acknowledge he's there, they refuse to repent, and they curse him. Instead of turning to him, they turn stronger, more strongly from him. They are hardening their hearts against him. The very same events that should be bringing them to repent are causing them to harden. And I've, I've, heard, I've heard an illustration of the difference between butter and clay. Not you. <laughs> but butter and clay. The heat hardens the clay and it melts the butter. Okay? Except the clay doesn't have a, heart, uh, a choice about being clay and the butter doesn't have a choice about being butter. But your heart has a choice about how it's going to respond to the things that come into your life. You have the ability to harden or soften. And, and, and after he goes on about this scorching heat, he goes to darkness, verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Uh, back to Egypt for a better picture of the darkness. Egypt, or Egypt, Exodus. <laughs> Chapter 10, verses 21 to 23. <clears throat> Chapter 10, verses 21, 22, and 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So it was a partial darkness. It's only in place. But he's describing a total darkness here. And I think as we look at the darkness of Egypt, we have the picture of the darkness that he's going to bring on the earth at that place. That time. And it's a debilitating darkness. It's a darkness where it's really hard to function. Right? There is darkness that you can function in. There's le- levels of darkness. You know, we are at the time where we are approaching the longest day of the year. And you probably have noticed how late it's light and how early it's light. And it's like, I get up early in the morning to make that trip to that little room, and it's not too hard to find my way around because it's only kind of dark. <laughs> but then there's that other time of year when I have night lights on. <laughs> Because otherwise, it's really, it's debilitating darkness. You can't function. This is going to be debilitating darkness. What do you do? And they're going to have little to do but dwell on their misery. Dwell on their pain, the heat, the lack of water. And and as they do this, they're going to dwell on that. They're going to curse God. And they're going to refuse to repent of their sins. And we see this progression taking place as the bowls of wrath are poured out. First, God's judgments are fair. Second, man hates God for his judgments. He not only refuses to repent, but he blames God. And we move on third to the next one where man actively seeks to war against God. And and, and we see these, these seven bulls demonstrating man's utter, insistent rebellion against God. Right? That, that's what we find going on here. So, so the sixth bull, uh, verses 12 to 21, the, the war on God, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw, I'll get to the dragon next. Uh, You know, the first thing we see is (coughs) really interesting when you think about this. God didn't actually do anything against mankind with this bowl. But he did open the path for mankind to attack him. He is allowing mankind to insist on his way. Uh, we find God doing this when man insists on his sinfulness. God re- re- uh, lets man, he, he gives, he, we read Revela- uh, Romans chapter 1, where God therefore gave them over to their sinfulness. Uh, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where God says, where it says, because they refused to accept the truth but insisted on a lie, he gave them over to a spirit of, of uh, deceit, I think is what it's called. Uh, because man insists on it, he allows it, and man is insisting on his, his, his arrogance and his hostility toward God, and so God opens the way. That's all he does here. Let me read it again. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare a way for the, for the kings of the east. And, and there's some interesting questions about this as you think about it. Armies are going to come from all over the world. The armies of earth are going to gather for this battle. This is Armageddon we're talking about. Uh, the question, one of the questions I have is, is uh, if they're going to war with God, why does it matter that they focus on Jerusalem? I mean, they, I, it, it, it's, it's like God is, if God is everywhere, just shoot the air. Take that. <laughs> Take that. It, it's, it's going to be about that effective, by the way. Um, as far as hurting God is concerned. Uh, but, but, you know, for first answer is, is uh, anybody who thinks they can go to war against God doesn't understand God in the first place, right? So, so the, that's the first answer is they are as deluded as, as they think they are and somehow think they can war against God. The second answer is that Jerusalem really is the religious center of the world. 
I mean, Hinduism doesn't trace itself to, to, to Jerusalem. Judaism, Buddhism, they don't. But Christianity does, Islam does, and Judaism does, right? Three major world religions, Jerusalem is a center, a world center for them. It is at least a symbol. Uh, but the third answer, and I think it's probably the best one, is that not knowing directly how to attack God, they attack God's people. And, and Jerusalem is representative, at least, of God's people. And so they're going to do that, and somehow they think by doing this, they're going to make war against God. And, and we don't have a real good picture of this. If we read this in Revelation, it looks like they're going to simply attack God. But let's flip back to Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament, right? Second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah, chapter um, 14, last chapter of this second to last book. And I'm actually going to read quite a bit of it. I could read a lot more. But what you, it's very clear as I read this, having read what I read out of Revelation and just looking at the, the timeline of things, it's, it's obvious we're talking about the same day. We're talking about the same battle. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from west east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. That would make sense to them. Then the Lord God will come with all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. And it goes on and on. Uh, it through the rest of this chapter and, and read it, go home and read it. <laughs> don't, don't read it now because I want to talk about it, please. <laughs> uh, but the world is going to attack Jerusalem and it will be, the, Jerusalem, you know, the army of Israel is not something you take lightly, but I'm sorry, they can't beat the world, okay? And, and, and the world is going to be victorious. They are going to be in the process of taking the city when God decides to act. And, and when he acts, uh, the world is going to be defeated because man can't beat God, right? Man can beat God's people until God takes a hand in it and says, no more. And what's going to happen around this, let me read verses 13 and 14, back in Revelation 16 now. Uh, 13 and 14, we find Satan is the one rallying the world here, right? And this is kind of a weird picture. Verses 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. What's a demon look like? Frog. <laughs> I, think, I think what he's saying is they're gross and ugly. <laughs> I, I don't think these are cute little tree frogs. Um, and uh, he says, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for, ba for battle on the great day of the God the Almighty. So they're 
coming to battle against God. And that's how they're thinking of it. They're coming to battle against God. We're sure going to show him. So these frog-looking demons, I think they probably don't look like that when they get there, but they've got power. We know Satan has power. He can do things. And they do signs and wonders. Look, I'm going to make fire come down from heaven. Look, I'm going to make a statue talk. Look, I'm going to do this sign and that sign. And the people are going to go, ooh, ah, this thing can fight God. Right? We're going to rally with them <coughs> because they're going to be saying they can fight God. God thinks he's so impressive, we can do what he does. And with your help, we can take him. He will pay the price. And we're going to go get him. Right? That's what's going on here. They're rallying them. Uh, and, and people are going to rally about them, behind them. They're going to go to war. And moved by hatred and cursing God, the armies of earth will gather at a place called the Valley of Megiddo, <laughs> or in Hebrew, Har Magedon, or Magadon, or however they pronounce it. Uh, Megiddo is a city at one end of the, something we normally call the Jezreel Valley, but it goes from east to west, or west to east, depending on which way you want to go, across Jerusalem, or not across Jerusalem, but across Israel. The rest of Israel is really rugged and rocky, and it's really hard to traverse, especially with large armies. But the Valley of Jezreel is, you know, a two-mile-wide highway for tanks and trucks and so on. And they're going to gather there. And then the seventh angel pours out his bowl, 17 through the end of the chapter. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split in three parts. And you, you know, I said you're going to see this, you're going to recognize he and Zechariah are talking about the same thing. He doesn't mention that the Mount of Olives is split in two. He says the city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hell because the plague was so severe. God flattens the world, splits the city, destroys the armies. Right? If you want another rendition of this, in a few weeks we'll be in chapter 19 and we'll see this written out a little bit differently. Uh, you can read the details in Zechariah 14 and find the man's eye view of it. Uh, but it's a big shocker. The point is God wins the war with man. Uh, God wins the war with man. And that's, that shouldn't, that, it certainly doesn't surprise anyone in here. Gee, I didn't know if he could do that. You know, it's, it's like a talk about a no-brainer. But here's what we find is in the end, there are two sides. And, and those that are not with him are against him. Right? Uh, you're with him or you're against him. You're for him or you're not. There, there's no fence sitting in this. Uh, God is on the winning side. Answers. People are going to harden their hearts to the point that they curse God and try to go to war with him. And as you hear those words, do they not sound utterly stupid to you? But people will be that hard set against God that that is their response. I want to tell you, <laughs> if you have not chosen God's side, Jesus Christ, yet, don't think that you won't be hardened. I mean, I said, I said we don't know how far away this is. The true end of the world is at least a thousand seven years away. 
Why do I say that? Because there's this thing called the millennium, it's going to last a thousand years. There's this thing called the tribulation, it's going to last seven years. Could start tomorrow. If it starts tomorrow, 1,007 years from today is the end of the world. Uh, completely. <laughs> the completely way end of the world, not just the kind of end of the world. We don't know when that's going to be. But don't think, and, but we're actually not talking about it, we're talking about what could be seven years away from today. Or maybe 17, or maybe 107, I don't know. I mean, we don't know, we're not given that to know. Uh, but don't think that if you harden your heart now, you won't harden your heart more when God is more obvious. Because as much as you may think you're different or unique, you're not. You're like all the rest of us. And, and we, make our, we choose our side, and we stick with our side no matter how dumb it is. So I want to tell you something. Choose the right side now. If you haven't choose, chosen Jesus Christ yet, I invite you to do that. We, we had communion. We talked about what he did. He gave his body. He gave his blood, not for exercise, not for practice, not for a big show, but to die and pay for our sins. He died and paid for our sins so we don't have to. And he gives us eternal life. If you haven't got that, I invite you to come to Jesus now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for my sins. I thank you that you saw fit to save me, and I praise you for revealing to me my need for you. Because, Lord, I don't think I'd have done that without your help. And I pray that if there's any here who are struggling with this right now, trying to decide if they should decide, Lord, that you will give them clarity and courage to choose you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us. Excuse me, stand with us. <laughs>